0: Welcome to the Networking for the People podcast series. If you're looking for guidance on NFTs, you've come to the wrong place, but stick around anyway and figure out what our friends are up to, why they're doing what they do, and how they ended up getting there in the first place. I'm Robert, welcome to NFTP. Today, we welcome Cicely, originally from Mississauga, Ontario. Cicely began her research career at the Weiss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard completed her bachelor's of science at the University of Waterloo before finally moving to New York City to complete her PhD in chemistry at New York University. We met years back now through organizing events for the Chemist Club. It was always great working with someone that knew how to drive a project through to completion, always had her speaking notes and calendar up to date. Cicely is currently working as a manager in product development for the digital health company Row in the all things skincare, digital dermatology space. However, you want to describe it or change my description of it is up to you. Cicely, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to get us right into it. In your own words, who are you and what do you do?
1: It's great to chat with you. I, you know, we met a long time ago. We worked on a lot of projects together. So it's great to be reconnected and, and you know, a new phase of my life. So um, first and foremost, I'm a chemist. I uh, have always considered myself a scientist from a young age. I was always very interested in science. I remember opening a science museum in my bedroom at the age of 10. So uh, that was peak, peak nerdiness I felt at That's the right. time. <laughs>
0: We will have this deep nerdiness moment. Yours just came maybe before others. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, yeah. I was I was always back and forth from the Science Museum, so I did a lot of that. But yeah, it, chemistry is my area of expertise. It's my passion, uh, but I draw from many areas of science in my current work. So, as you mentioned, I currently work at Rowe and we are a direct-to-patient digital health company that powers the men's health brand, Roman, the women's health brand, Roe Fertility, and our skincare brand, Roe Derm, which is, I think, our our latest venture now. Uh, We also have a fully integrated online pharmacy. Um, The mission of Roe is to deliver simple, reliable, and convenient products and services that people want. And, you know, we really just operate to help people feel their best at all stages in their healthcare journey. Um, So right now I sit on the innovation research and development team, as Rob stated, as a product development manager. I'm technically agnostic to all of our different brands, you know, Roman, Roderm, Women's Health, but um, I, I currently do most of the skincare product development, which is most closely aligned with my core expertise. Um, I work very closely with a cross-functional team that includes expert dermatologists um, to bring products to life that can really support people in all stages of their skincare journey. Yeah, that's what I'm up to these days.
0: That's all really interesting. I like how you're tying in the different pieces from your surface chemistry. Onto the surface of our body, the biggest organ, right, is our skin layer. Yes.
1: That's, that's funny. I've actually I've never made that connection in my brain before. Like surface chemistry, skin surface. Wow, well, <laughs> my mind is actually blown. But it's so true. I mean, surface chemistry is is obviously a little more molecular. The skin surface is a little more complicated than right. <laughs> than some of our uh, you know polymer surfaces that will, that I've done a lot of research on. But um, yeah, it's the largest organ in our body. It's meant to keep us protected and support our immune health. And if we take care of it, it will help us look and feel beautiful for the rest of our lives. So, yeah.
0: That's, and that's the least we can do, right? With all the heat recently, we I feel nowadays more than ever, I'm watching the UV index, uh, even though I don't think I truly understand what that number means. But when it's high, it's usually a bad sign. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah that's all you need to know. High, don't go outside or... <laughs> Go outside with a hat with SPF. SPF is the most important uh weapon in your anti-aging arsenal. So lather lather it up.
0: <laughs> Speaking to, you know an arsenal of weapons, not only against the sun, but against the other forces out there, the forces of the market, the forces of different research areas that you've touched in, that we've worked together in. Your past research has been quite multidisciplinary. Like you mentioned, you studied creations or created your own creations in your uh, bathroom from the age of 10, Um, but you studied everything from creating bio-inspired stainless textiles, structurally colored phototonic materials from the last part, which is structural protein analysis is where we finally uh, started talking about it. So that's the thing I know most about, I think quite a few about the work you've done, um, your PhD focused on self-assembly and colloidal synthesis, um, and your work ties to that too. Elements in healthcare are combining those usable final products or solutions, uh, and bringing them to patients. There's a lot of different things going on that you've worked on that you're putting out into the market now, your job. My question is for you is um, what aspects of your education do you feel that you most strongly bring to your work or uh, that you tie more closely to?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I definitely come from a pretty multidisciplinary background. I, like you said, started my career at at the Wyss Institute at Harvard a long time ago, 2012 or so. And I worked on some really cool projects when I was there. I used to literally go into clothing stores. I remember going to like a Nike store and buying textiles of different varieties. And I would take them and chop them up and chemically modify their surfaces to be repellent of all fluids so i i created repellent textile materials from polyesters, cottons, other synthetic materials wool all for the purposes of creating like anti-staining, you know, clothing more for like the industrial sector probably too expensive of a synthetic process to replicate at scale for the consumer markets but right. <laughs> uh, but we made some really cool stuff we really did and and that, that research group really was, was doing some incredibly, uh, incredible bio inspired work. So, what, what, what do you mean really by bio inspired engineering is looking to nature? for inspiration uh, when it comes to designing materials. So these repellent materials I was working on were inspired by the the Nepenthes pitcher plant, which is one of those carnivorous plants that has like a very slick edge that water Mm -hmm. gets entrapped in and it causes it to be quite slippery and then ants will slide into the belly of the plant. So it traps the ant into the plant. And we basically use the same um, hybrid liquid solid Structure to create slippery materials and and since then there have been several uh, startup companies spun off from this concept. There there's one called adaptive Surfaces technology that's based in Somerville, Massachusetts, and they're they're applying these coatings to the hulls of ships and toothpaste tubes or something, I don't know what's <laughs> going on, um, but It sounds awfully
0: thing. useful. Gotta get the yeah, most out of the toothpaste useful. tube.
1: They were useful. Um, I probably shouldn't talk about this other company because they were one of our big competitors when we were <laughs> developing these materials, but actually, I'm trying to remember what the name the company is now. I just saw them at a trade show. Company like, X, Company
0: X, X. We you can, can edit go. that
1: in, yeah. Um, but they were based <laughs> out of MIT and, and they've started actually a packaging company that does that does sell into the beauty sector, which is where I currently am now. Um, and they create these slippery coatings and, and actually do have a partnership with Colgate um, in which they have, toothpaste that actually doesn't stick to the inside of the tube. So you're really getting a very sustainable removal of all the material from the tube because there's so much product loss with sticking to packaging. So creating packaging solutions for the cosmetic sector. So you know, coming full circle uh, to what I do now, I draw upon my past education all the time to do my job, whether it's directly the research I've been doing um, or just applying learnings from being able to Adapt new areas of science, of which I've dipped my toes in many. And um, like you said, everything from materials to structural biochemistry. I, I spent a short while doing structural biochem research. I realized I didn't want to grow cells ever again. I just couldn't stand the smell of growth media. And I was like, no more chemistry cell bio, I was, I was out pivoted into the colloidal chemistry realm, which is very applicable to cosmetics industry and, and fell in love with the beauty industry very quickly. And what colloids are, they're basically small little particles and they're suspended in a liquid medium. So things like milk are colloid suspensions, things like clouds, we have particles of water droplets suspended in air. Um, there's so many examples of this in daily life paint, which is you know particles of oil suspended in another oil medium. And mm-hmm. um, you look at these things under the microscope, you basically see a bunch of little spheres just bouncing around in, yeah. in some sort of liquid or, or gaseous medium. It so- It was always that-
0: my favorite, so, sorry to interrupt, it was always my favorite acronym, WOW. is like water, oil, water.
1: Yes, oil and water, water and oil and you know in the cosmetics we've got other many other things, silicon and oil and water and all kinds of stuff. Um, but yeah, cosmetics is all about colloidal chemistry. It's all about emulsions. Um, again, emulsions being those milk like structures that make up our lotions and our creams and our serums and all these things so understanding the physics of how these uh, these materials come to exist and remain stable and how they're synthesized this is this is how we as you know cosmetic chemists create products so anyway that's that's a whole lot of science but getting back to sort of what i'm doing now doing a phd really most importantly taught me just how to dig deep and how to be resourceful when it comes to answering scientific questions and drawing on multiple areas of learnings PhDs really teach you how to research with intent, to be resourceful, and most importantly, to have integrity with you know what we're putting out into the world. I work in the consumer products industry now, and you know people interact with our products. We want to make sure that we're doing our diligence, putting things out that are safe, that are efficacious, and especially from in a healthcare company, this is very very important to me. Um, But, you know, I've really learned how to adapt to new ideas, which has been really critical in my role as a dermatology and skin science professional now. Uh, Dermatology was fairly new to me and I still do a lot of research. I read tons of scientific literature um, and research really comes into play at many stages of development, primarily when we're developing initial concepts for products, we're ideating, we're innovating, we're thinking through, you know, what is the physiological goal that we want to achieve? Um, But then I also work very, you know, operationally and I I help support our, our marketing team. I work on claim strategy we uh, we have to develop marketing claims that are true to science in order to get these products onto the market. So we, we really work hard to make sure that the scientific data underlying our ingredients and our products mechanisms of action have been well studied, screening for safety and toxicology. Um, and of course we consult with our expert dermatologists and regulatory team to ensure sure alignment and safety. So, um, you know, whenever we develop cosmetic or OTC products, we also wanna make sure that they perform as intended, whether that be to help reduce appearance of fine lines and wrinkles or to moisturize. We always execute testing and research to substantiate claims before anything hits the market. Um, So I can really confidently say not all brands launch products with this standard of quality and research excellence, but we really set the bar high at Row and this is something that I'm very proud of.
0: It always makes you feel better, I think, doing work that you can be proud of and knowing that you've done and gone through the full life cycle of testing, both for the product and then, like you said, being involved with different teams, making the claims, working on the research yourself, helping with the actual formulation development. Um, It's a lot, it's a lot of information that you have to balance, that's for sure. um, As you're trying to learn new things and make sure you're actually releasing the latest and greatest, and not only that, but the best. To that point of having to work in that full life cycle of, again, working with the different teams. When I was in school, I didn't remember having to always focus and think about those different tangents or the different parts. Um, research, at least in my graduate degree, was very focused on uh, the problem statement, um, you know, immediate solution, right? Not always thinking about other regulations in place, um because you're not always putting a real product out there maybe with uh, research um you know you could write a paper and get published but it doesn't mean it's gonna turn into a final product what would you say was difficult or maybe there was nothing difficult for you and it was all really easy uh to transition from you know doing that peer research in your uh during your doctorate work and then bringing yourself and having yourself cover all those different areas now
1: yeah it's definitely been. Uh quite the transition. And and honestly, and I get asked about this all the time by my previous colleagues from grad school. And, you know, I always try and give them the best advice that I can, but I, I feel like it's almost impossible to describe how different my day-to-day life is than in doing peer research. And, and what you've mentioned in terms of thinking about regulations and you know how to actually bring things to market like that these aren't things you think about when you're just doing fundamental research you're just thinking about the technology and 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 that's good and bad you know it, it, i think it can sometimes lead to more innovative ideas, but ones that might not always be commercializable, but that's not always people's goals, right? But transitioning from research to healthcare, it's it's definitely been a learning challenge, but I've, I've very much enjoyed it. It's definitely inspiring to work amongst medical doctors and scientists of so many varieties. My first few projects at Roe were actually in dietary supplements, which was uh, quite an interesting industry to dip into. It really allowed me to tap into my biochemistry knowledge, um, which is what i studied in my undergrad degree and and apply it to a new industry it's dietary supplementation formulation is really just all about metabolism understanding of, ultimately um i've since transitioned to pretty much only managing skincare and i really love it i'm definitely more comfortable here i i still do a lot of research but my work is much more balanced and dynamic than when i first started at row and definitely more so than graduate school uh, truthfully i don't like to work on one tiny segment of research for long periods of time.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> my research Grad school was far too theoretical for my liking. And I learned a lot. I, again, learned a lot of integrity, grit, perseverance, resourcefulness, ability to learn fast and cope with failure. Grad school is a lot of failure. Um, but I'm definitely much happier making products that can help change people's lives, or at least help people look and feel beautiful depending on their goals when they come to our platform. Um, product development also lets me work very cross-functionally and really see the full life cycle of a project more quickly. I am a very extroverted person. I, I spent a lot of time in grad school in windowless microscope rooms, just samples for hours at a time. It was just dark, grueling, oh my gosh, not talking to anyone for days. I can't, I can't work like that. Um, but now I'm, I work very collaboratively with brand marketing, our in-house DERMs, uh, consumer insights teams, and so many other stakeholders to create products and concepts that really align with our patient and consumer needs and, and market opportunities as well. So um, you know, once new projects are briefed out after all that sort of concepting and you know, market alignment work and brand alignment work, my work becomes a lot more operational. I work very closely with supply chain, with our quality assurance teams and, and our packaging teams to actually bring these products to market. Um, and, and I also work very closely with regulatory and legal on everything from executing manufacturing contracts, agreements to um to claims construction product testing and really support most of the cross-functional initiatives through to go to market and and product launch so yeah it's it's a lot of fun one of the best parts of working in this industry is that it's definitely much easier to describe to people than boring them with colloid chemistry research it's not particularly people um, it's also I, I love the beauty industry it's very woman-led and I'm fortunate enough to work with many women of color, which is very important to me. Uh, unfortunately, academia is not in, always like this in the physical sciences. And so I'm I'm really happy to have many shared values and safe spaces with colleagues at work. Ro really does have a company culture to aspire to. Uh, I think academia has a lot of broken racist systems that I feel like I was very responsible for correcting while I was there to continue to open doors for people behind me in my career so it's it's nice to just feel more supported and um you know i honestly i am glad that i did a phd i think if i knew what it would entail i don't know that i would do it again but um, the credibility that it lends me i think is extremely valuable and and you know people do have respect for my expertise and and that is so invaluable in the workplace but it's it's definitely a challenge and um can take an emotional toll so yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be where I am today. I'm very lucky.
0: And I'm happy that you found a place where you can kind of pull, uh, you know, your own passion of, you know, not only representing yourself in the space, but pulling on the experience, showing that that grit and perseverance that you mentioned before really does go a long way there's a lot of facets to you know your own grit that needs to go into staring at cells under a microscope and different chemical solutions i don't need to no tell cells. you that
1: remember no, no cells no cells I had to the cells <laughs> uh, only only colloids
0: <laughs> but no i'm happy for you that you're able to find this space and it is something i want to touch on a little bit later through uh some of the chemist club events that we did one example was the diversity inclusion panel which you helped put together and lead. So I'm happy that you can bring that full circle and really tie in what you learned, the ability to learn, the ability to find out new research, take on new materials that you probably wouldn't have expected, like this whole dermatology initiative. I know I mentioned it before, but it's impressive and it's really cool that you're able to study and learn all about that. So I want to shift a little bit away from your day-to-day work and the new research and experience that you do now to what brought us together in the first place, which is the Chemist Club. To simply describe the Chemist Club to our listeners, it is a nonprofit organization within New York City that supports students and professionals in the vast chemical and supporting industries through networking events and mixers. Um, like I mentioned, you led some of our um, panels within the Chemist Club um, with a couple of help from a few of us through our bonding conferences. Go a shout out to Alex and Ashley, we'll have to send this over to them if they haven't heard already. But through some of those conferences and presentations, we had industry experts coming to give their states on the state of the industry. The first instance specifically pointed to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Many of the Sustainable Development Goals not only have to do with how do we really sustain the planet um, in terms from the environmental perspective, but also tied to the diversity inclusion piece that you mentioned before. Uh, the digital innovation piece, how can we interlace the industries, interlace our experiences and knowledge to make our own lives better Um, and not only for ourselves but for the people around us. Pointing to let's say those three examples of the sustainability panel, the digital innovation panel and then the diversity inclusion panel, can you point to anyone who didn't say yes this helps guide my day-to-day or general work-life activities?
1: Yeah, those are all such important topics. And uh, Rob, we had so much fun planning those events. A
0: lot of stress, a lot of fun. (laughs) A lot
1: of stress, a lot of fun. But I mean, really, we brought hundreds of people into those rooms to discuss the sustainable development goals and digital innovation and diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, over the course of three years, I think we we drew in at least 500 people to those events. I think uh, I I learned a lot from planning those events and Mm -hmm. from the Again, the pure grit it takes to fill a room with uh, engaged industry professionals from all over New York City. We had guests coming in from parts, other parts of the country, from other cities, and you know, just to hear what what all these thought leaders had to say. I mean, we had chief officers from Dow and L'Oreal and other major chemical corporations. It was really a great success. Um,
0: and from the UN itself, you and know, from the UN, <laughs> oh, yes, that helps. <laughs>
1: yes, we had a partnership with the UN that sustainability conference i i really feel in this day and age it would be amazing to have a repeat event especially now that we're just older we know more and we have a deeper understanding of how sustainability um really is impacted by all industries and all parts of the supply chain and and it's something that i think about a lot there there really are so few metrics out there when it comes to defining what sustainability means for a business and it's because. know supply chains are so complex i mean in my business you know we start with raw materials which can have petrochemical origins plant origins you know a variety of different feedstocks. um so there's obviously you have to consider sustainability at that point where is it coming Mm -hmm. from and you know what what are the emissions affiliated with creating that raw material and you know what's the water usage like is it is it on is it on stolen land is it like what's the how much are you producing per hectare there's just there's so many ways to define whether that raw material itself is sustainable, and then a cosmetic product is, you know, some compilation of it could be ten to thirty different raw materials. If you have a fragrance ingredient, it can, you, you could be getting into the hundreds because those are very you know chemically complex mm-hmm. substances. And then you know, of course, the manufacturing of that process—is it is the heat required? Is it how much water use Does it have? There's it's—it's like you start to think about all the aspects of this, and it's so overwhelming. And um, and we haven't even started talking about packaging yet, you know. And yeah. and then you know, end life of course. A lot of you know, post-consumer recycled packaging is not recyclable. Ultimately, so I will, I feel like obviously the list goes a on all day, yeah. and you like think about it, and it's just like it's obviously more complex than the typical consumer can really appreciate i don't think people are really thinking about where you know the full supply chain of the product they're buying off the shelf at target but you know there's obviously a lot of greenwashing that's happening like the 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 psychological impact of just putting a leaf on a product you know to make people feel like it's, it's something better for the environment is so powerful but um in reality, there are no standardized metrics in the beauty industry for evaluating sustainability. But there are some people that are that are doing um, great things in terms of starting to actually, you know, put some data-driven uh, metrics behind how to evaluate product sustainability and provide those tools to beauty companies to use to to be able to understand what the true carbon footprint of their product is. So. I'm really happy that consumers are becoming interested in understanding whether their product has an impact on the environment but you know ultimately there's just the time scale of like consumers driving you know real innovation and, and driving companies to and to hold them accountable for adhering to these metrics it's it's just still too long and we're really, running out of time and realistically the beauty industry is not the biggest contributor to uh to to greenhouse gases um we've got the automotive industry to blame for that and and the and the plastics injury industry of course so um it's 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 a challenge i think we could definitely have some really uh some much more advanced conversations now than we did at this event what was it 2018 maybe 20 uh, 2017 yeah so long ago we were so young and you know are we were it's crazy how much we've pro- we've learned collectively since then um so yeah I still think about that a lot and um and of course with the DEI aspect I mean I work in tech there's still a lot a lot that needs to change in terms yeah. of underrepresented minorities in this industry, but I've always fundamentally believed that it really starts with education access. And, um, you know, all these issues are quite intersectional, of course. I mean, most communities of color exist in in locales that have higher pollution rates that are in closer proximity to industrial, um, you know, industrial plants and things like that. So, yeah, um, I'm sort of just rambling in circles right now, but of course these things impact my day-to-day life and work. Um, you know, we all got to eat, so I'm not going to pretend as though I I, I work, I guess what's the word I'm looking for? Like, you know, we're not perfect as a company yeah. we're, like our <laughs> goals are clinically effective skincare. We're not trying to be the most sustainable skincare company on the market, but there are some things we do really well and we provide We provide products and services that really help improve people's health outcomes and and there's there's a place for that too there's there's just there's there's so much to unpack with all of it and uh consumer product goods i think it's a great it's a it's it's sort of a great conduit for holding you know the upstream players in the supply chain accountable eventually but it it takes it takes a long time
0: the one uh example that it's not necessarily one example from the biotech space and the pharma space that I work in now, um, but in chemistry there is this E factor idea. If you've heard of it, uh, particularly in green chemistry, the E factor is defined as a ratio uh, for the total uh, waste of a process over the total mass of the product. So you consider everything that goes into the process versus the actual amount that you get, um, and the bigger that number, right? So more waste it took and more waste you generated to get a final product so if i think about it from the biotech space we use so much water so many raw materials packaging etc to produce you know single tablets to produce single vials uh, so the number in the biotech space is actually insanely high if i just think about it you know the ideal factor the ideal e factor is zero <laughs> because you know you, you know it's a closed process you're not generating any waste and you're able to reuse everything but that's just not realistic, like an ideal gas. Yeah, I would imagine the skincare and um, even oil and gas, there's a lot more use for some of the byproducts that uh, you can bring back back to life.
1: Yeah. I have faith in the beauty industry to figure it out faster because again, you know, consumer products have to respond more quickly to shifts in consumer behaviors. You know, like no Mm -hmm. one's really thinking about like gas in their car and like going to the gas station and trying to figure out which gas is more sustainable. That's it's it's just not something that you're doing and but people have it's a really crowded market in the beauty industry so there is there is a lot of competition and and competition drives innovation and drives accountability mm-hmm. and and we do see that more uh, more and more upstream in the supply chain raw material suppliers are definitely starting to tap into more sustainable materials um and speak to this i mean they raw ingredient suppliers have marketing departments of course and they uh they they of course want to make sure that they're selling things to manufacturers and 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 brands that that are aligned with consumer behavior so i have faith that we're going to get there faster in the beauty industry it's it's, it's very heavily scrutinized by consumers um which I think is really good. And I, although I don't agree with all the philosophies in the clean beauty industry, I am really pleased that like, however muddled the messaging may be, like the outcome is like, it's, it is about sustainability ultimately, but people, there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance there. You know, like for example, natural materials, not necessarily the most sustainable. Synthetic processes can produce chemically identical materials at a fraction of the impact on the environment, then, you know, can you imagine if we had to squeeze vitamin C out of every single orange versus being <laughs> <as we laughs> produced synthetically for, for decades? And I mean, there's no real like naturally derived vitamin C because it's just far too much land and water use to justify yeah. something that we know how to make very well, very efficiently and very inexpensively. Um,
0: and Florida's going underwater, uh, so we're yeah, gonna we're gonna run, of we're gonna run out of oranges. I so, run out of Florida oranges.
1: <laughs> I actually have no idea what the typical feedstock is for naturally <laughs> dry vitamin C. Kakadu plums apparently have lots of vitamin C. Kale, broccoli, but anyway, Red peppers, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know that's that's something that's a little bit hard to internalize as a consumer. Is you think it's natural, so it's therefore more renewable. But you know it it might it's not necessarily renewable just because it's natural. And, and I mean we obviously know that, um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot to unpack. I feel like I had another train of thought, but it's escaping me, so.
0: That's okay. Perhaps it comes back to uh, when we'll take a step back into that topic. Um, but taking a step back, because I do want to hear about your day-to-day, um, work is important. We we have our passions. We have a lot of things we spend our time on. Um, what else are you doing these days that keeps your work-life balance in check?
1: Um, yeah, I feel like I have, a pretty decent work life balance at the moment. Um
0: calling in from Toronto. I think that might be our first for a podcast so far.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um I've been working from Toronto all week. I'm I'm visiting some friends, which is nice as I'm, you know, from from the Toronto area. Um but really I think work life balance is about attitude primarily and and management. Um there I think mean, these two things are absolutely necessary. Somebody once told me that you don't have to be stressed to be productive. And this just like <laughs> really stuck in my brain. I was like, wow, this just blew my mind because I especially feel like, as millennials, especially as millennials living in New York City, we've just fallen into this trap of always sinking into this fast paced, constantly stressed state of mind. Where everything is urgent and you know everything is crucial and nobody has time and everybody's busy. Mm-hmm. And ask them. Um, and you know, I'm I'm not arguing that stress is just like about attitude and state of mind. Like there's definitely genuine causes of stress and stress is very hard to overcome. But I do think that you know people, especially in New York, put a lot of pressure on themselves and and are under a ton of pressure at work and the work culture in the city is definitely very intense. Um, I've never really felt like too stressed working long hours when I need to, cause I'm not very regimented in my in my work cycles. So there's days when I just am like kind of coasting through just doing what I need to do. And then there's there's some days where I just like, I just turn on and I'm focused all night and I'm just a machine and it's, you yeah, know. I feel that. <laughs> Yeah. And and that I just kind of I, I oscillate between those two states, which is, yeah, like my my partner, for example, he's the complete opposite. He's very regimented. He's like, I go to the gym these three days. I go to the office these three days. I wake up at these times. I go to bed at these times. And like, like he has to have routine to be successful. And I just am a bit more reactive to like day to day things um and and like if i have to move a meeting because something comes up or like you know i just tend to have i don't tend to get stressed about things like that i i don't tend to get stressed about like giving presentations and stuff it, well, it depends on the audience but That's right. <laughs> um, you know like again like you don't have to be stressed to be productive even if there's a lot to do there's a lot you need to get done you don't have to be overwhelmed, and and this—I mean—that's this is just my new mindset, right? I know it's kind of hard to just like flip that switch, but this this really helped me, and um, and I think helps me every day, even when I just have a lot of work to do. Like, work doesn't make me stress. Having things on my plate doesn't make me stress. It's more like the cultural dynamics of work that probably make me stress, and like yeah. building relationships with people and making sure that people like me. I think that's really uh when i will get stressed if i feel like you know i'm i'm not like doing a great job of getting along with people or you know things things like that are feeling shaky um work from home has also given me a lot of flexibility and i you know not all days are the most productive days ever but now i can adapt to that if i if i'm feeling extremely highly focused then that's amazing and some days when i'm not i just know i can i can make up for it tomorrow and and so it makes me feel pretty calm. I'm also just very deliverables driven. So as long as I'm giving dates and deliverables, I'm like very calm. I'm definitely the the most stressed when I don't know exactly what outcomes there are and there aren't measurable outcomes. I need milestones, timelines, like these things make me feel very calm. <laughs>
0: yeah, book, book, book the room, set the date and we'll figure out the plans of that.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, this, yeah. I feel like this, you know, also just like to the point of, you know, to my point about only really being stressed about like work relationships, I feel like it comes from being a cheerleader for a long portion of my life. I feel like I, you know, you need to depend on and uplift people or they can be seriously injured <laughs> when <laughs> everyone fails. And I, I, I'm really like, I'm not great at confrontation. I, I don't really care that much about like ownership and visibility I just I actually really like my job and I want to get things done and um and I want to earn like the right for people to respect me in the workplace I I don't want to manipulate people into thinking I know what I'm doing I just want to like I want my work to speak for itself and mm-hmm. and that also comes from my upbringing right I was raised by immigrant parents they made a cumulatively like 20k or something when I was born bought a house somehow Imagine days. imagine doing that <laughs> Those were the days. Still have that house too. Um, you know, they work hard, they still do. They've done well for themselves now. And and I intend to do the work as well. Always have, always will. That's how I was trained and um you know as long as my performance reviews are mostly positive i feel pretty relaxed on a daily basis and and i actually have a really outstanding and supportive manager which i have to say really helps he really empowers me to bring my best self to work and um yeah i'm i'm just really grateful to be where i am in my life i feel very balanced and uh i love where i work i love who i work with i just hope i can keep meeting managerial expectations and and growing within the company if i've earned it so yeah
0: Couple of points that I just want to emphasize there, not in no necessary order, but ones that I resonate with: finding those days where you can turn it on um, and get everything you want done, um, and being okay with the days where you're not your most productive self. Or there's, you know, uh, a concert that is happening that night, and you're just you're focused on that, and you go, and the next day.
1: When was the last time you went to a concert in these pandemic times? I have no idea
0: well i'm so kendrick lamar is touring right now so his tickets had come out some like friday at 10 a.m and i had a meeting um and i told the person i was with like hey i need to move this because i really need to get these tickets (laughs) so i was i was super i was super honest the moment i was like this is important to me it's on my good friend's birthday And I need to guarantee that I get this. And he was like, go get your ticket. (laughs) Like, let me know. Like, should I go too? like, do I need to know about this concert? I'm like, yeah, (laughs) he's a a (laughs) Pulitzer Prize winning um, artist. Um, But but anyway, uh, I think it's about being open with, uh, you know, how you choose to approach your problems and, you know, taking whimsical approach at times and being okay with how you're going to handle it and knowing that you're going to come to that solution at the end because you put in all the effort through your research so far um your volunteer efforts um your cheering efforts as a cheerleader um i remember i remember you i can't was it a high school team that you were a co-captain or not co-captain and co-coaching
1: it's very specific oh very no yeah i was well i was i was a co captain on my yeah, I was the co-captain of my Texas high school cheerleading team. So I really had a real cheerleading experience, but, but you're right. I also did. I did help coach the NYU team for a year when I first moved to New York. Um, I had some injuries and I was like, I still want to be connected to cheerleading. So I honestly just kind of like showed up and was like, do y'all need help? That's <laughs> it was really fun. Um, was it one year or two years, year, two years. Yeah. Yeah. It was good.
0: It was good times. No, that's all great. And I'm happy that you're able to find time to do the things you're passionate about, um, back then and even now. Um, so maybe to close, I want to hit you with one more question that you're not ready for. Uh, if you could talk to anyone who's either dead or alive from human history, let's say you have an hour of time, you're going to grab a coffee or a quick lunch, who would it be?
1: Oh my gosh.
0: I I couldn't let you get away I have with
1: no that. idea. You know what? I actually I thought of an answer. It would be Cicely Tyson because she's my namesake. And she was such an inspirational black actress that, you know, also I currently live in Harlem. She was she is also from Harlem, so it feels like I born I'm, and raised, know, yeah. It's home. Um, there's a smoothie around the corner, smoothie place around the corner from my apartment in Harlem that has a drink called the S- Chocolate Sicily Almond, and I, every time I go in there, I'm like, do I get a discount because my name is Sicily? Because you know, <laughs> like Harlem things. But anyway, um, you know, obviously she she died at the age of ninety or something last year,
0: 96.
1: Six, two years ago. It's yeah, pretty recent.
0: Um, I, re- I remember seeing it on the news. Yeah,
1: pretty recent, and you know, broke a lot of barriers as an actress during her day and age, and. I feel like I'd like to talk to, like, really any iconic barrier-breaking Black people like Katherine Johnson, you know, historic NASA uh, mathematician and uh, one of the, one of the women portrayed in in the Hidden Figures movie that came out a few years ago, um, also very, very inspiring to me what she, what she endured in order to just get her work done during that time, um, I actually wrote a bio about her on my Medium page a long time ago that I'm now remembering existed. She just had a fantastic life um, and was very humble, always spoke about her work. um, as just, she was there to do her job and I have a lot of respect for that. She was there to, she wasn't there to make noise and she didn't, you know, she wasn't even trying to break down barriers, but she did so by virtue of just like not taking anyone's bullshit and continuing to do her work and did it exceptionally well um and you know is a legacy and she also died fairly recently i think it was maybe last year as well at the age of 101 i believe yeah um so yeah we'll go with them
0: awesome well thank you for providing your insight your namesake um it's certainly nice hearing about these different parts of uh your life then your life now uh things that we didn't always have time to talk about in the midst of the craziness of event planning and our own research work that we had going on. Um, but Cicely, I do want to thank you for your time today uh on NFTP. Thank you for giving us your thought process as you have started and are already working through these early stages of your career.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate chatting with you, Rob, and um yeah, happy to happy to chat anytime. Um and I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks for thank having you. me.
0: Of course. Thanks to all our listeners. Please visit our website at nftpcast.com. Follow us on Spotify. Complete the Google form on our website to stay in touch. Submit future topics and industries for us to cover, recover, and discover. Tune in for the next episode and see you next time. Hi, this is Tyler, the sound engineer with the Networking for the People podcast. If you liked today's episode and the music we played, check us out on Facebook and Instagram and at nftpcast.com. Thanks so much and have a great
1: day.